Before we begin, just want to take a moment and say I appreciated you playing, Margaret, and uh, wanted to just um, extend the opportunity to others um, because I think uh, we're very thankful for Corey, uh, for her longtime playing, for Rob, for his accompanying, and for um, those who lead in music, Jared and Jonathan, and... Um, but I don't want us to feel like just because these people are doing something every week that there's no opportunity for other people to uh, play an instrument or be involved in serving in some way. I was reminded of this. We were visiting some friends Thursday night, and they were talking about uh, sometimes people don't necessarily feel like their skills or interests lie in the areas of music or teaching or something like that. So they say, so what can I do in connection with the church? And so... Uh, one of the things that they've tried to do is they've said, well, maybe you have some interest in technology and things with computers and that kind of thing. And so they are, they have projects that they've worked on for a number of years now related to um, sort of compiling, editing, correcting Bible apps in various other languages. And so sometimes it's as simple as clicking some buttons to pull in a text document and then um, that gets uploaded as a Bible app. Sometimes it's as complicated as here's a really old file format on a floppy disk from 20 or 30 years ago, and how do we get that converted to a modern format and get all the coding to match up as far as the, the uh, punctuation and all those kinds of things. So if you say, well, that sounds like something that I would be interested in, I'd be happy to connect you with something along those lines. But just also just to remind us that our opportunities to serve at church go beyond merely things like leading in music or teaching or those sorts of things. And so um, I don't necessarily have all of the ideas of exactly what that looks like. But if you say, hey, here's something I think that would be beneficial to church or folks in the church. I want to I pursue this as a ministry opportunity. And you say, I'm not sure exactly how that fits with what the church is doing. Come talk to me. I'd, I'd love to have conversations about those sort of things. And as much as possible, I don't want to stand in your way of opportunities to do those kinds of things. Uh, so it's a balance, right? Not everything should have to come through me to be approved, to be connected with the church, right? If you see someone in the church or your neighbor or whoever and they need a bag of groceries, you all have been very good about going and just taking care of some of those needs. But there's also an opportunity to give through the deacon's fund so that if we hear about things, we can have funds to go um, minister in those ways. Um, there are uh, just different outreach kind of things that we do as a church, but if there are things that you're doing, you say, I need help with this. I need resources. I need, I need to print up flyers. Can we use the church copier? You know, those sorts of things. I want to try to support in all of those things. I don't want to be the only one that is driving all of those things. So uh, I was just th thinking about that in connection with uh, special music and, and other opportunities that we have for service in the church. And so... Thank you for that. Now, going to the book of Mark. What do you need in life? I was thinking about this question last week. Uh, we had opportunity to travel up to the UP. The kids had never been up there. And because we were kind of doing it last minute, uh, one of the few places that we saw that was available that we could rent uh, happened to be a yurt that didn't have electricity or running water. And so... Uh, you say, well, why would you do that? Well, we made that choice because it got us closer to some of the amazing things that you can see, uh, like Taquamanon Falls and Laughing Whitefish Falls and Miner's Beach and some of these different things uh, along Painted Rock shoreline. And other things as well, like hiking trails and a clear stream to wade in. Some of you might think that still sounds like a terrible idea. No showers, mosquitoes everywhere, kind of an iffy road that you might get stuck on. But those things were the cost, at least at this time of year, and given the parameters of getting close enough to the things that we wanted to enjoy. It was a good reminder, I think, for me that so much of what we think we need in life, we actually don't. In the end, we need Jesus. Even food and clothing and life itself are blessings beyond our needs. Remember, Paul said, with food and shelter, we'll be content. But then right alongside that, he said, I've learned to be content even without those things. So as we look at Mark 6 through 8 and the subject of discipleship, what cost, I would ask, is worth it to you to follow after Jesus? 
In the beginning of our section today, the verses that Eric just read for us, we see the disciples sent out basically with the clothes on their backs to preach the gospel. And they had to trust in God to provide for them along the way. We see John the Baptist preaching repentance even to a king with power and life of life and death over him. But then we see the crowds who wanted their bellies fed and their problems taken away. Disciples who, despite their ministry of preaching, suddenly forgot all of they had seen of Jesus' authority. Pharisees who wanted religion, not the Savior. A Gentile woman who demonstrates faith, more feeding of the crowds. A blind man whose eyes are open when the disciples didn't have the faith to see Jesus' warnings about Pharisaical unbelief. All of this building to the great confession of Peter in chapter 8, you are the Christ. And then Jesus concluding with a sober warning about what it means to actually follow after him. So we'll get there at the end, but the point of these chapters, I believe, is this. Follow Jesus himself despite the cost. Follow Jesus himself despite the cost. The first example of this is to follow Jesus despite the cost of basic needs or even of life. As I said a moment ago, Jesus sent out the disciples, verses 7 through 13, with the clothes on their back. He sent them out, giving them authority over the unclean spirits. I think the first point we see from this little section is that if you have God's authority, you don't necessarily need to be worried about the future. If you and I were getting ready for a trip, we'd say, all right, what do we need to pack? We need some extra clothes. We need some extra shoes. We need bug spray. We need food. We need all these sorts of things, right? Jesus said, don't worry about the food. Don't worry about the extra clothes. You are going to have to trust and rest in the hospitality of the people who receive you. And some of them won't. Because he says in verse 11, any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So the point was, even if they were rejected, God was going to use them for a testimony. And God was the one who was going to give success to his message. And whether they went hungry or whether their needs were provided for, they needed to go out as Jesus commanded them and be ready to do the ministry that he had called them to. So he sends out the disciples and they preached that men should repent and they cast out demons and anointed with oil many sick people and were healing them. They're going to come back in verse 30, but there's this quick aside. And this aside is, a, is connected with this question of who Jesus is. Jesus' ministry had raised these questions of who he really was. Herod and the people are disputing. Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he Elijah or just another prophet? And then we see this development that Herod keeps insisting. He must be John the Baptist brought back to life. We say, well, why is the case? Mark goes into a sort of an aside to explain that John the Baptist had been killed as a preacher of repentance, which is very fascinating, set right along the side the fact that the disciples were sent out at risk of hunger and lack of hospitality, but I think Mark puts this section, this story in here, to show that the cost of repentance is sometimes even more than that. Preaching repentance can lead even to death. Herod arrests John because Herod's wife had a grudge against John the Baptist because he condemned their sinful marriage. It says, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now we could take this a couple of directions and we could ask questions like well John was that really the point of your ministry did you really need to say something to this guy who you know is going to be angry at you for saying that what he's doing wrong is wrong haven't you already done all the things you're supposed to do you've announced Jesus Jesus has come why are you saying things that could get you in trouble with the authorities I think The reality is what John was saying was in line with his message. And here's why I would say that. John's message was repent and have deeds worthy of repentance, of which baptism was an outward visible sign. So you remember the Pharisees sent some of their number, or at least some of the scribes and so forth that worked for them, down to the river. And what was John the Baptist's response? His response was, you're not really serious about this. If you want to come do the baptism, then go start living like you actually believe my message. We don't know this from the Gospels, but Herod's interest in John's message, it says in verse 20, he was, knew he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, and he heard him and was perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. 
It seems entirely possible that Herod or people from Herod's household had gone down to see John the Baptist in his ministry, and John's words of condemnation against Herod's lifestyle were the same sort of response that he had to the Pharisees. Now, I can't show you chapter and verse on that, but based on the text, it seems like a very reasonable assumption. Whether or not that takes place, Herod is interested in John's message as sort of a curiosity and a new thing to ponder and sort of a philosophical, intriguing thing, but he's not interested in actually following after. And so for John to say, if you really want to follow my message, you can't be married to your brother's wife because that's adultery. That fit very well with John's message. Quick aside for application today. We live in a society in which certain actions that are sinful are moving in a direction to be protected as um, essential aspects of personhood. Let's just put it that way, right? So at the moment, let's say that there's someone who believes he is a dog. You say, well, that's not what's on the books. Well, no, but that's the direction that things are likely headed. Maybe they'll get there, maybe they won't. If someone says, I am a dog, and you have to pretend that I am a dog, and you have to give me dog food, and you have to walk me around on a leash, and those sorts of things, there's a degree to which we would say, that's ridiculous, right? There's something wrong in that scenario, and there is. I think there's a couple of points that we need to keep in mind, though. One is, that's not the only evidence of sinful behavior that we encounter. So, if we encounter someone who says, you know what, we're not married, but it's okay for me and my girlfriend to live together. That's also an example of sinful behavior. And we've sort of been around that sort of thing so long in our society that it's not really a big deal to us because it's such a common theme in television and in books and all those sorts of things, uh, movies, whatever, advertising. We just sort of expect. Well, yeah, it's a sin, but everybody does it, so it's kind of something we expect, right? And then we encounter other sins, and we're like, well, but no, that one, no, not at all. Now, the reality is, if things continue the trend that they have been, those things, while they may never feel normal, are going to become an accepted part of society. So here's the thing that I would challenge you to think about. Do you go out of your way to challenge a particular sin because it feels uncomfortable and unfamiliar to you, or is your goal to see the person who commits that sin delivered from, from it? John's goal, I think, was to see Herod delivered from the sin of adultery and the sin of pride and the sin of hypocrisy and the sin of being seen religion as a curiosity and see him move to a point where he actually followed after the message of John the Baptist, which pointed to Jesus, which would mean that Herod would follow Jesus. And that would have been an amazing thing if Herod, uh, the descendant of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, if Herod came to believe in Jesus. Now, we don't know that Herod ever did, but you know there's a fascinating thing that we see in the book of Acts. Um, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just going to turn aside to it because I think it's very relevant to what we're discussing. It is this idea that there was in the church um, a number of people, and one of the people who was in the church, it says, is a man named Menaean, and I can't find the verse right at the moment, and he was a member of Herod's household. So how did he come to trust in Jesus? Possibly because of this encounter with John the Baptist preaching. We don't know that for a fact, but possibly. So even if Herod himself doesn't, didn't believe, it seems that at least some of the members of Herod's household did believe. So, John, why did you do this? Because it was in line with his ministry. Because it fit the goal of trying to see God's power work to change Herod's heart and life. And this is where the accepting of consequences come in. If we follow after Jesus, and if our motives are pure, if our motives are genuine, actually wanting to see a person delivered from the sin that is ruling that person's life, then I think we can, with clear conscience, accept the consequences, whatever they may be. If we go out of our way to say, this is not American, this is weird, so I'm going to sort of, you know, 
try to get back at the person because they're making me uncomfortable. That's not the right motive, and if some of the consequences fall on us, there may be some degree to which we deserve it. See the book of First and Second Peter for a whole discussion of those kinds of things. I'm not saying those actions are right. I'm saying let's not pick out one sin as though it's the only sin, and let's not go out of our way to sort of, um, uh, how do I put it? There's an older expression to sort of thumb our noses at policies and laws we don't like, right? because we just sort of have a chip on our shoulder. That's not the right attitude. Should we oppose unjust laws? Absolutely. Are we going to fix all of them? Absolutely not. John accepted the consequence of preaching repentance was that Herod, who had power of life and death over him, could potentially kill him. And that's what ends up happening because Herod arrests him because of this grudge of his wife. Herod's wife uses... Her daughter's attractiveness and Herod's drunkenness is an occasion to manipulate him into doing what she wanted. She's like, kill him. He's like, I don't want to. He's interesting and I'm a little bit afraid of him. She's like, fine. So he gets drunk. Her daughter goes and dances for him, which is a whole other inappropriate thing. And he says, this is wonderful. I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. She goes and asks her mom, what should I ask for? She's like, the head of John the Baptist which is kind of a strange request, but Herod's like, I'm stuck. I can't embarrass myself in front of my guests. So he does it. And then John's ministry ends. His disciples come away and bury his body. This is why Herod is afraid that Jesus is now John the Baptist. Because what other explanation is there? What I think is fascinating is that's even more terrifying than if it's another person through whom God is working. Because if the guy that you killed unjustly is now back alive and preaching repentance and doing miracles, that means that his power is so great that even death himself couldn't contain him, which is true about Jesus, as we're going to see later in the book of Mark. But in my mind, that's more terrifying than if another prophet has arisen or another messenger of God has come to preach the same kind of message. And so think about where Herod's at. He's afraid. We don't get to see what Herod's response is here. We see the apostles coming back. The apostles go, God will take care of you. You're going to face opposition, but it's going to be okay because the message will spread. Repentance and preaching of it can lead even to death. Now the apostles come back. They report to Jesus all they've done and taught. So Jesus is now going to show his power again to feed and protect and heal. He's going to show it over and over again. So there's no question about his power. Does Jesus have power over life and death? Yes, we saw that last week. So if Jesus has authority over unclean spirits and power over life and death, then he can command his disciples to go and they have nothing to fear because even death itself will not ultimately conquer them because they serve the one who has power over all these things. But he continues to show he has power over lesser things as well. He says, let's go rest a while. You've just come back from your journey. And now they're experiencing the same thing that Jesus had been experiencing. There were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And Jesus was like, this is our vacation. Get out of here. We don't want to talk to you. No, he said, all right, I have compassion on you. We really need the rest, but I have compassion on you. Here's an opportunity. We're going to minister to you again. Jesus shows compassion on and feeds the hungry crowd of 5,000 plus when the disciples could see no solution by human means. What is the disciples' solution? It's desolate and it's late. Send them into town so they can buy some food. Jesus says, how about you feed them? The disciples are like, we can't do that. We don't have 200 denarii, 200 days wages. Shall we go and spend that and give them something to eat? They probably didn't have the money. And even if they did, they're saying, should we do this for one meal for all these people? And they're still in this mindset that the only solution is a normal human solution. Right? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go look. They said five and two fish. Commands them all to sit down. They sit down in groups. And he took the five loaves and two fish and he divided them, and all were eight and were satisfied. There were 12 full baskets. There were take-home boxes for the disciples. And all the people were full. From five loaves and two fish. It says there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Now, it's 
probably also women and children as well. But even if there's 5,000 people, that's a huge miracle that Jesus does. And so Jesus is spurred by compassion. Even though his goal is not to do the miracles, he does the miracle as well out of compassion. And we say, okay, that's interesting. We're going to see it again in, in the next chapter. But then Jesus calms the sea a second time. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he was sending the crowd away. Guys, you need a break. I'm going to finish getting the crowd home. You guys go across in the water, in the boat. And then he left for the mountain to pray. So Jesus goes and has the alone time, even if the disciples don't necessarily uh, for purposes of communing with his father. And then the boat's in the middle of the sea and he's on the land. And then the wind is against them and they're straining at the oars. And then he comes to them walking on the sea. And they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out. They saw him and they were terrified. But he spoke and said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now in another of the Gospels, we have the account of Peter. We don't have that here about the walking on the water. He gets in the boat with them. The wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. It says they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but their heart was hardened. Jesus just fed 5,000 people. He's already delivered you from a storm on the sea. You're in a storm on the sea thinking that you're about to die, and he delivers you again, and you're surprised by it. They should not have been surprised at this point. Why were they surprised? Because they're stuck in this mindset of only human solutions to supernatural problems. <clears throat> and failing to see the point of Jesus' ministry, that if he is the one who has authority over all of these things, over evil spirits, over food, over life and death, over the storms, he has to be the Messiah. And they need to follow him, and they need to trust in him. And Jesus continues to heal the people over and over again. We see this at the very end of chapter 6. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. They got out of the boat. The people recognized him and ran about that whole country and carried here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. They're like, Jesus is going there. Let's go get so-and-so. Let's bring him there. Hey, that person over there, bring them there. Okay, Jesus maybe isn't there anymore. Let's take him from here. Let's take him over to the new place that he is. And Jesus shows compassion and continues to heal them. As many as touched the fringe of his cloak were being cured. The thing that happened with the woman with the discharge of blood on a wide scale. So what do we see from chapter 6? When Jesus calls you to go out and preach his gospel, you may have lost. Some places will not welcome you. Some might even try to kill you. But the want is not a sign of his failure. If he can feed 5,000 and more, he can feed you. If he can save men from drowning, he can protect you. If he can heal the sick, he can take care of you. But if not, like Daniel's friends in Babylon, will you still follow him? Or like his disciples, are there moments when our hearts is hardened, are hardened and we fail to see his authority and we refuse to follow him because a cost is involved? One of the major obstacles that we turn now to in chapter 7 that blinds us to the authority and necessity of following Jesus is human tradition that supposedly serves God. So follow Jesus despite the cost of giving up your own traditions. Follow Jesus despite the cost of loss and even death. Follow Jesus despite the cost of your own traditions, which we might say that seems insignificant in contrast with the risk of loss or death. But if there's some belief, some expectation that we've held dearly all our lives, that can seemingly be a much bigger obstacle than even the risk of losing money or time or freedom or those kinds of things. Jesus begins by condemning the Pharisees for empty traditions in verses 1 through 13. They see his disciples eating with unwashed hands, not for dirt, but for ritual clean, cleanliness. This was not your mom says, go wash your hands before you eat so you don't have germs, so you don't get sick. This is ritual cleanliness. They said, impure hands, that is, unwashed. The emphasis was on impurity, not on risk of disease. Their tradition involved all sorts of washings and cleansings. And these things, verse 3 says, the traditions of the elders, and verse 4, things which they had received in order to observe. So these things were passed down from those before. So this raises a question for them. Why don't you follow the tradition of the elders? 
Jesus' response is that you are hypocrites according to the prophecy of Isaiah. He says essentially, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus says, upholding man's traditions replaces God's word. Verse 9, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For example, honor your father and your mother. Death, if you speak evil of them, is what God actually said. But you say, if a man says, everything I have is devoted to God, I can't help you. Sorry you're old. Sorry you're sick. Sorry you need something. This all belongs to God. I'm going to enjoy it while I live, but none of it was going to go to help you. Not helping your father and mother, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition. And this is a really essential point. Replacing God's word with man's tradition means rejecting God's word, not safeguarding God's word. Jesus says there were many more examples of this kind of thing that they did. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but let's go on to the next section. Jesus, building on this, reminds the crowd and the disciples that sin from within defiles us, not external things. Hey, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. That's going to defile the food that they're eating, and then they themselves are going to be defiled. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. The Pharisees' tradition assumed that external things made a person unclean. Jesus says the problem is our sinful hearts. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. What do the disciples say? We don't understand. What does this mean? Jesus explained that food cannot defile because it passes through. He said that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Food cannot because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. So you eat food, your body absorbs nutrients, and what's left goes out of you. Can it defile you? No, because it's only in you for days at the most, right? And he's saying the process of it is not for the food that might be considered impure or unclean. It doesn't go into your heart and defile your heart. But what's in your heart that's already there that's defiling the sin, things like he says, evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These evil things proceed out from within. That's what defiles us. Sin defiles because it resides within and is not removed apart from God's work. So Jesus declared all foods clean, but says the issue is not what the Pharisees are focused on, external compliance with rituals of washing. The issue is our hearts are full of sin. And our hearts can be full of sin even at the moment that we claim to be worshiping God, which is part of what Jesus is also pointing out. The Pharisees are saying, you need to be clean by doing these things. What did it also say about the Pharisees previously? It said in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. We wash our hands so that we are not unclean when we eat the food that God has provided and we tithe little bits of spice off of our shelves while we let widows starve, try to kill the Holy One of God, and put out of the synagogue anybody who wants to hear his message. Do we see any hypocrisy with that? Let's make it personal. If you and I say, I follow God, I love his people, but I'm going to lie about someone at the church. They don't care about me. They don't love me. They don't help me. I'm going to be envious of someone at the church. God, why that person and not me? I'm going to be hateful towards someone at the church. I can't stand you and I don't like you. We could come in here and we can sing songs and we can give money in the offering and we can listen to the sermon and we can answer questions and we can go out from here thinking that everything is right between us and God 
because we were in church and we did the things. But if what is in our hearts is gossip and envy and pride and resentment and hatred and wanting evil to happen to people around us, we're just like the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to warn the disciples about them in the moment. But first he goes and he has ministry among the Gentiles at the end of chapter 7. And they have seemingly a positive response. He shows mercy among them and they marvel. He first delivers the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from a demon. He goes to the region of Tyre. What's the region of Tyre? It's around the area where Jezebel came from in the Old Testament. So these are pagans, right? They worshiped gods that wanted things like child sacrifice and ritual prostitution and all of sorts of things like that, right? They worshiped gods that were so cruel that their prophets of, of Baal and so forth felt like to get their God's attention, we have to cut ourselves with sharp knives and dance into a frenzy until we're exhausted and some of us fall down dead and then the God will pay attention. That's the sort of God that they worshipped. That's the sort of region this lady came from. He goes into a house, wanted no one to know of it but could not escape notice. A woman hears of him whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. What does she do? She falls at his feet. She shows a degree of reverence and respect. She pleads fervently with him. Now, she shouldn't necessarily expect that he would say yes to her because he, the text emphasizes, verse 26, she was a Gentile and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus at first rejects her and we think this might be cruel, but it's actually a test to show her faith. He says, let the children be satisfied first for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, he's not saying you are a dog. He's saying, this is how the Jewish people view you. And I came to minister to the Jewish people. And they're seen as the children of God, and you guys are seen as dogs. And it's not right to take away from the ministry that I'm called to among them to help you guys out when this is the ministry I'm called to. You know what her response is? I'm not going to give up. She says, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off from the table. She's saying, just give me a crumb. I don't, I'm not asking for that. Do this one thing. Jesus says, because of this response, your daughter is healed. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, authority over unclean spirits. He doesn't have to go there. When he goes and raises the synagogue official's daughter from the dead, he goes where she is. When the centurion comes and says, hey, will you help this person for me? He's like, I'll go over there. The centurion's like, you don't have to go. You're in charge of them. You can do it with just speaking a word. Same thing for this woman's daughter. He responds positively to her faith and to her persistence. Then he goes and heals a deaf and nearly mute man in the Decapolis. We see this in, he came to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. This should be familiar because this is where he healed the demon-possessed man who's been going around telling the people about Jesus. So they bring to him one who is deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hand on him. We were talking about this this morning on the way down here. Jesus takes him aside from the crowd by himself and touches the Gentile man. Think about this context. Uncleanness, defilement, what's acceptable to God, what does it look like to follow after him. He takes the Gentile man, puts his finger in his ears, and then he spits on his hand, touches his tongue, so Jesus is now ritually unclean. But that's not his focus. That's not his concern. He's saying, I am going to show you through this miracle my compassion toward this man. He looks up to heaven, and then he says, be opened. His ears were opened, the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. He gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. There's this irony he now lets the man hear and speak, and he says, don't, but the guy keeps doing it, and all the people around. They were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So the response of Jesus' own people at the beginning of chapter 6 is, where did he get these miracles? He's the carpenter from down the street. We know him. We're not going to believe him. Why would we follow him? And the Gentiles say he has done all things well. Maybe we're not there to the point of faith quite like this woman whose daughter is healed from the demon. 
And maybe we're not following like we should, like the guy when Jesus said, don't proclaim, and he goes and tells everybody. And yet, they marvel and have a positive response to Jesus' ministry. Summary of chapter 7. When Jesus calls us to break with the traditions before us, do we? You know, we don't worry about ritual washings for ceremonial uncleanness, but what traditions do we have? Wear a suit and tie. Don't run in the sanctuary. Meet on Sunday morning. Quick points that I think are really good for us to remember. People in the first century didn't dress up for church. They were day laborers and slaves, a lot of them, right? They came from work. Most of them probably hadn't had a shower that day. The place where we hear sermons to the point of the sanctuary is not holy in and of itself. Should we have respect and honor for God and his word? Absolutely. But the building itself is not holy and sacred. As far as the time of gathering, meeting on Sunday morning, when I was a kid, I was talking about this with some people, there's this idea that if a church didn't have a Sunday night service, or if they at least had a Sunday morning service, that maybe there were some concerns about whether or not they were doing things the right way. Think about the fact that if Sunday was not a day off, when would the people of the early church have met? Sunday night. Which is why you see examples of Sunday night or middle of the week, uh, Paul is preaching and it's after midnight because they all came to hear him after they were done with the work of the day. So they're, do, they're doing their church service at like 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Not I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule. I'm just saying... This idea that that has to be at a certain time, and I'm not condemning our church for this because I think we've, we know we've adjusted. We do the afternoon service now. We did different things during COVID, all those sorts of things. My point is not to say this is an issue. My point is to use this as an illustration of what did God say versus what is a tradition. What is the principle? The principle is gather. The time is not the focus. The place is not the focus. The God we worship is supposed to be the focus. So if we find replacing what God commands, assemble with what our tradition is, which is go to a church building, what will we do in a time of persecution if there is no church building? We might think, I can't obey God anymore because there's no building, and I go to the building, and that's how I obey God. But that's not the command. The command is gather. The command is not go to a building. The only reason that would be an issue for us in that moment is if we've replaced what God has said with what men what we think God wants the traditions of men here's the more important thing why do we come up with traditions we come up with traditions because we think the following of traditions will make us holy the problem though is not the commands of God they are pure Psalm 119 explains this at length the problem is our failure to live up to them which we don't solve by adding more rules and traditions. We solve by walking through the Spirit as we see throughout the New Testament by returning over and over again to what did God say versus what do Christians say and do. Jesus made it clear that what defiles us comes from within and only God can cleanse the heart. So what's the connection then with the Gentiles? The tradition of the Jews was the Gentiles are unclean. Now, did God say that? No, he said don't marry them. We'll get, more, we'll get to that in a moment. Jesus makes it clear here that no food is unclean. The book of Acts builds on that and makes it clear that no person is unclean. Only sin defiles. God's concern with the law was never about avoiding groups of people. It was to show his people the danger of idolatry and paganism, and yet somehow Christians turned the command for the Jews, don't marry idolaters because you'll worship their God, into don't do interracial dating. The school that I went to had that as their policy for a really long time. That is not in the Bible. They try to come up with flimsy defenses for it about, well, God cursed Canaan and, you know, this thing about the Jews not marrying. A, you're not a Jew, and B, that's not the point of it. The command was for a different group of people, and we're completely missing the point if we make that application. You say, all right, I would not do that sort of racism, which is technically ethnicism, because there's only one race, the human race. All right, great. What groups of people do you see as beyond God's mercy? Who do you view as a dog to be kicked around and get none of of God's kindness? The faith of the woman for her daughter in this passage showed that she was perhaps more worthy than most of the supposedly clean religious crowds following Jesus. And in the end, that's what matters. Do you follow Jesus? And why should we follow Jesus? Because, as chapter 8 shows, Jesus is the only one worth following. 
And I've said this before because Mark keeps saying it over and over. Don't follow Jesus just to get things from Jesus. The crowds wanted to be fed. There was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus said, I feel compassion. If I send them away hungry, they will faint. Some of them have come from a great distance. The disciples lacked faith. Again, where will anyone find enough bread here in the wilderness? You are standing with the manifestation of the God who fed you with man in the wilderness. And you're like, where are we going to get food, guys? He just fed people already. And you're like, we don't have any bread. The crowds wanted to be fed. You say, how do we know the crowds wanted to be fed? Well, because that was the shallowness that we've seen throughout the book of Mark of their motivation for following after Jesus, they wanted to see amazing things. And if he's already done it once, and then they come, and then they see it happen again, then there's at least some motivation of wanting to be fed. Now, maybe they were curious about his teaching, and maybe they listened a little bit, but by and large, he preached the gospel, and for the most part, they just wanted to keep seeing more things. This is very clearly true for the Pharisees. Verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They wanted another sign to prove Jesus' authority, as though the things he had already done weren't enough proof of his authority. Jesus laments this generation, which is a phrase we see throughout the Gospels, uh, associated with the unbelief of the people of Israel as the Messiah comes to them. He lamented their unbelief. He says, no sign will be given. In another place, he says, no sign but the sign of Jonah. You're not going to have deliverance from the Romans. You're not going to have ongoing miracles of feeding and of healing and all those sorts of things. These are temporary things to show my authority. They're going to cease. And the only sign you'll be left with is the fact that I've been raised from the dead. Now Jesus heals a blind man. I'm sorry. Uh, that is the end of that section. The crowds came to see a curiosity and got fed. The Pharisees wanted to test Jesus and see another sign. Are you actually having the authority you say you are? Obviously, yes, but we don't believe it. So let's, let's have another. We also can't follow in a way that misses the point. So if the crowds wanted something from Jesus and the Pharisees wanted something from Jesus, sometimes it's not that we necessarily want something from Jesus, it's that we've missed the point. The disciples are focused on food just like the crowds. They forgot to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Which is ironic because they had seven large baskets not long before. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with each other the fact that they had no bread. We're hungry. Watch out for sin. But we're hungry. That's not the point. Jesus isn't talking about bread. He says, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves? How many baskets? Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets? Seven. Do you not understand? Jesus condemns their blindness to spiritual truths. I can provide. My words are truth. This is what you should focus on. They missed the point. It wasn't about bread because Jesus could feed them. It was about Jesus alone versus the false teaching of the Pharisees, the decadence of Herod. Don't walk in the sins that these walk in. Follow me. Then we see this miracle where he heals a blind man. It's really fascinating that he heals a blind man right after talking about spiritual blindness, isn't it? They bring a blind man to Jesus at Bethsaida, implored him to touch him, takes him by the hand, he brings him out of the village, spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. Do you see anything? He looked up, I see men like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently, he was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Why does John or Mark put this story in between the disciples' spiritual blindness and Peter's confession of Christ? Because their understanding of Jesus is coming in stages, just like the healing of this man. Jesus absolutely had the power to heal him just by speaking a word. He didn't have to do it in stages, but I think he does this as an illustration to the disciples of their blindness. How are we supposed to follow Jesus then? Follow because you recognize who Jesus is and the cost of following him and embrace both things willingly. Jesus questions the apostles. Who do you think I am? 
Who do people say that I am, rather? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. But who do you say that I am? Peter correctly identifies him as the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. Jesus then talks about his coming death and resurrection. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. And he stated the matter plainly and Peter began to rebuke him and Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. This goes back to the temptation of Jesus, right? In the wilderness, if you bow down and worship me, you don't have to go through the cross. You can have it all right now. And so he hears in Peter's words the temptation of Satan once again. You can go the easy route and be delivered. Which I think is in part why Jesus then responds with, here's the cost of discipleship. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And people make a big deal about the imagery of taking up the cross. We want to make it about like jewelry and sort of a symbolic thing. Here's basically what he's saying. What you want out of life is not what you can want out of life if you're my disciple. You have to want what I want. And you can't want the easy way because the easy way is rarely the right way. That doesn't mean life has to be miserable. It just means... There is this pattern in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, in the history of God's people, that the cross comes before the crown, that suffering comes before glorification, and that hard work comes before rest. He illustrates it a couple of different ways, with some almost riddles, right? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. How many of you can add moments to your life? Well, Jesus taught about that too, didn't he? You can want really hard to add moments to your life. There are all of us who for ourselves or someone else have wanted to see life go on longer. And we had no power to make that happen. As much as we try to preserve life, we will still die. But if we are willing to let go of our lives and serve Jesus, we will gain the life that matters and that lasts. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And he's not talking about a kind of martyrdom that is taking out a whole bunch of people as you go. That's the false perspective of Islam that says, if you martyr yourself by killing a bunch of enemies, then God will let you into heaven. Nope, murder is not the path to glory. He's saying, if you go and preach my gospel and it leads even to the point of death, like John the Baptist, whose life we saw earlier in the passage, that is a sign that you possess the eternal life from God that really matters. Let's do a comparison. What is a profit for you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't sell your soul to the devil, but you can refuse to repent. And if you refuse to repent, even if you gain everything that this world has to offer, you are damned for all of eternity, and there is nothing that can be worth that. Not fame, not pleasure, not whatever you can think of that this world has to offer. It is not worth it. Jesus concludes by saying, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you want to be ashamed of Jesus now? Jesus says, I will be ashamed of you when I come back. Chapter 8. Some follow or appear to follow to get things from Jesus. You're like, I will follow Jesus if he fixes my money problems. I will follow Jesus if he fixes my marriage problems. I will follow Jesus if he fixes my kid problems. I will follow Jesus if he fixes my work problems. I will follow Jesus if... Fill in the blank. Jesus wants you to follow him whether or not all the rest of those things work out the way that you want. And as long as we are fixated on wanting those things to be fixed instead of following Jesus for who he is and what he wants from our life, they will not be fixed. Because if we see Jesus as an opportunity to get rich, what does Paul say? Godliness with contentment is gained, but the pursuit of money and riches has led many away from the faith. If we see God as a solution for problems with kids, then we're focused on the fact 
that they're not doing what I want instead of the fact that I'm not doing what God wants. The same thing is true in marriage. The same thing is true in any other relationship that we encounter. If we are focused on what God will do to fix someone else, we are not focused on the fact that God needs to fix us first. Because why do we need fixed? Because that which defiles is in our hearts and we need God to deal with it. We're not going to follow him perfectly. We're going to be like the disciples and miss the point a lot of times. We're going to want stuff from God and see that as the point of Christianity. But this section, along with the rest of Scripture, calls us not to stay in that moment of imperfect faith, but to grow in faith and to say, true following, the goal of it is to rightly identify who Jesus is. But not to stop there because the demons did that, right? You're the Son of God. Peter confesses, you're the Messiah. Okay? Next step, and I will follow you. Because that's where the demons didn't go. And that's where a lot of people don't go. They know who Jesus is, but they don't actually want to follow him. You have to accept God's path to glory. You have to embrace the cost of following. Because following Jesus is worth it, even if it costs your life and everything you have. Because following Jesus gains you eternal life with God and the approval that matters most from Jesus himself. Follow Jesus himself, despite the cost. Let's pray. Father, it is one thing to read these words and to ponder them and to understand what they mean. It is another thing entirely to live them out, and we cannot do that apart from your strength. Give us the strength, the resolve, the grace to follow you and to keep following you and to follow you in the hard times and in the the times that we think are really good times to follow you even if it costs us relationships, to follow you even if it costs us things that we want, to follow you even if it costs us our very lives. But Lord, there's a progression here. If we're not willing to follow you with the simple things you've called us to do every day, forgive those around you. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Work in order to share. How will we ever be ready to die for you? Your disciples were still your disciples, but when the moment came and you were in the garden, they all ran away. They weren't ready to die with you, even though they thought they were. And I think that's probably true for most, if not all of us here today. It's not a lack of desire. It's not a hatred of you. It's just we need your grace to walk through the difficult moments of life and develop a degree of consistency of faith and trust in you so that like Habakkuk we can say everything is going to fall apart and that's okay because you're still here and I will be with you. Lord, help us to get to that point and carry us safely home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.